Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 13, we read, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared a city for them. By now you're familiar with the fact that our chapter began with an explanation of faith. In verse 1 and 2 and 3. Then it continued with a series of examples of faith. Abel in verse 4. Enoch in verses 5 and 6. Noah in verse 7. Abraham and Sarah in verses 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 and 12. We've looked at what they did. And what they endured. And we even got a brief glimpse into why they acted in faith. So here the writer inserts his belief about the history of salvation. The men and women of faith saw an invisible city. They had a picture of the city of God. Later we learn that men and women of faith believe suffering for the cause of Christ is going to be more valuable than all the riches that the world has to offer. In verse 26 it says, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater Riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. And we discovered something else that they could with confidence look forward to their own resurrection from the dead, and that's going to be reiterated in verse 35. If you go all the way towards the end of the chapter, it says, Women received their dead raised to life again. The men and women of faith experienced God's assurance and then they anticipated God's approval. The Bible teaches we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith counting on the promises of God. Absent complaint in verses 13 and 14. Absent compromise, absent comparison. The writer of Hebrews points out that their faith was not temporal, but eternal. A faith that seeks an unseen territory, a heavenly country, with the approval of God. And so the reoccurring theme throughout the Bible is a reoccurring message that we're going to hear over and over and over again. This place is not your home. 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 You are here 
only temporarily. And the more you begin to realize it, all of a sudden your affection and your interest and your desires are going to be looking more and more and more into the eternal future. And so, we're passing through. In order to see and grasp our future, we have to look beyond this contaminated world. We have to look beyond this corrupt world. We have to see further. Our faith in Christ grows and matures. And then we actively seek this future territory promised both to them and to us. The men and women of faith separated from the world. Sought the promised land. Embarked on a journey. And then they stayed the course. What's sad is that some of you will be interested in this place called heaven. Some of you will be even excited about it. But then all of a sudden, the cares and concerns of this world will begin to crowd into your heart and crowd into your life. And this place will become a little more important to you and that place will become a little less important to you. But it's a trap. And so the writer of Hebrews is going to point out that enduring faith leaves no room, first of all, for complaint. Look what it says in verse 13. These all died in faith, having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now remember, the writer has already told us that faith, remember in the opening verse, is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. Pause. Faith is the ascent of the mind to the truth about God and his gospel. Let me repeat that. Faith is the ascent of the mind to the truth about God and his gospel. Faith is something that your mind says concerning the truth about what God has revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So with your mind, you begin to understand, wow, there is this person named Jesus. Wow, he lived the perfect life that I could never live. Wow, he did these miracles. This wonderful Jesus, this amazing Jesus, he lived, he dies, he rises from the dead. But it's more than that. Faith is the ascent of the mind to the truth about God and his gospel, fully persuaded that God's word is valid and reliable. Faith is more than just the ascent of the mind, but then it incorporates the consent of the will. It's not just something that you believe with your head. It's something that your head and your heart unite together. And as your head and your heart unite together, you begin to understand something. You can respond to the call of God by obedience to his word. Faith's accent is trust. Faith trusts or relies on the Lord. With our mind, we're persuaded by the Lord. With our will, we have confidence in the Lord. And through trust, we rest in the Lord. And so the Bible says these all died in faith. 
I want you to think about that for just a moment. These all died in faith. In what way? Persuaded, confident, trusting. That's what it means to to die in faith. It doesn't mean that I went to church every once in a while. It doesn't mean I read my Bible every once in a while. It doesn't mean that I was sorry and I cried some tears once in a while. It means living your life persuaded, confident, trusting. They believed the promises. And here's the point. They believed the promises and then they kept on believing the promises. Let's continue. They believed the promises. They kept on believing the promises. And then they died. And then they died. Remember, a promise is only as good as the person who makes the promise and who has the power to keep the promise. You know that, don't you? You know that a promise is only as good as the person who makes the promise. You know that a promise is only as good as that person's ability to keep their promise. And so you stop thinking about the promises that you've made or that other people have made to you and you begin to think about the promises that God has made to you. So what was Abraham promised? Remember for the last several studies... We've talked about that. I've reiterated it over and over again. What was Abraham promised? That God would create a nation through his seed. Genesis chapter 12 verses 2 through 5. God would give Abraham and Sarah a child. Remember this was an impossibility. Even though at 70 she's a stone fox. It's just not normal to have babies when you're like 90 years old. And Abraham is 100 And even though it seems impossible in Genesis chapter 15, God does the impossible in order to keep his promise. So think about it. God has made a promise to Abraham. I'm going to make you a mighty nation. I'm going to give you a child that's going to change the world. I'm going to provide for you an eternal city. Remember what we've already learned in verses 8, 9, and 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to the place which he would receive as an inheritance in verse 8. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Abraham believed in God's power to raise the dead. We're going to discover that a little bit later on in verses 17, 18. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested offered up Isaac, and who had received the promises, offered up his only begotten son. In what sense? In the sense that if he obeys God, and this is the son of the promise, in order for God's promises to come to pass, he's going to have to bring his son back to life. But it becomes a type and a picture of you. Because in order for you to have your sins forgiven, in order for you to go to heaven, Jesus is going to have to come and Jesus is going to have to live and Jesus is going to have to die and God is going to have to bring his son back to life. So Abraham and Sarah would have a singular son in the line of promise. Isaac would have a singular son in the line of promise. Jacob would have a singular son in the line of promise. And the circumstances didn't offer much comfort 
either to Abraham or Isaac or Jacob because if you went back in time and you thought that the thread of salvation is hanging in the balance of one person's obedience, you begin to pull your hair out wondering, is God going to keep his promise? Is God, is God going to make all of these things come to pass? But we've already learned God keeps his promises despite the circumstances. Abraham was buried in the tomb that he purchased for his wife, Sarah. Isaac was buried in that same tomb with little evidence that they would possess the land in the future. Jacob died in Egypt. And as he's dying in Egypt on his deathbed, he makes his children swear that they'll take his body and they'll bury him. In the land that God had promised to his grandfather and father. God made a promise. John Phillips writes, God is a surer thing than a post-dated check from a billionaire. If a billionaire decided to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to write you a check for a million dollars. It's Bill Gates or, or some other billionaire. Do you think you can go with confidence to the bank and know that the money's good? If God makes a promise to you, you can with confidence know that he's going to keep his promise. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob died not possessing the land. But they didn't complain. They didn't gripe. They didn't say, where are you? You said you were going to do something, and where is the promise that you made? Rather than complain, you know what they did? They confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Did God make earthly promises? Yes. Did God make a heavenly promise? The answer is yes. The earthly promises were simply shadows of the heavenly promises promises. The earthly possessions were just a shadow of the heavenly possessions. They understood that they were going to keep a light touch on the things of this world. They weren't going to hold on for dear life to what is in the here and the now, but rather they were going to fix their eyes to something far more lasting. And so, did Abraham and Isaac and Jacob believe God? That they were going to inherit the land? The answer is yes. And to that end, the pilgrim has two objects of possessions. A tent and an altar. Again, John Phillips writes, quote, With the tent, they confess their attitude towards this world. They would not let its attractions blind them to spiritual realities. With the altar, they confessed their relationship to the world to come. They were believers. Thus, they adopted the attitude that as far as this world was concerned, they were strangers. And by that, away from home. I want you to think about that for just a moment. A stranger is a person who's away from home. Pilgrims are people who are going home. And each and every one of you, at least at some point in your your life, you may have been far from your home. You were a stranger. You were away from your home. 
And then all of a sudden, something would change and be different as you're making your way back home. Again, Philip says, God had truly weaned their hearts away from the earthly to the heavenly. This, of course, was the very thing the Spirit of God was seeking to accomplish in the lives of the Hebrews to whom the letter was addressed to the relevancy of the whole passage is evident, unquote. Remember what we've learned about the context. These are a group of Hebrews, Jewish people, who had accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior, and things were difficult, and things were hard and things were very, very painful. And so they toyed with the idea that they were going to abandon Christ and abandon Christianity and return to Judaism. And you might be thinking exactly the same thing. You might be thinking, I'm not happy here. I'm not happy. I'm not happy where I am. Of course you're not happy. You look around you and you see something. You go, there's something wrong with this place. There's something broken in this place. I don't belong here. And you would be right. There is something broken in this world. And so God has placed you here, a stranger, That means you're in a foreign country. But a pilgrim, that's because you're going home. You weren't meant to stay here. You were always meant to leave. And so... The writer of Hebrews reminds us that Abraham and and the others refused to make themselves comfortable here. That's the point that he's making. You see, when you're a stranger, you don't belong here. And a pilgrim, you belong somewhere else. If you know that you're only going to stay on a temporary basis, how wise is it to make yourself comfortable? Can you imagine someone says, hey, I just need to spend the night with you. And then they decide to move in and they put all of their stuff in your refrigerator and they put all of their clothes in your closet. And then they go to the furniture store and they buy all new furniture for your house. And you go, wait a minute, wait a minute. You seem to be making yourself way more comfortable than I anticipated, especially since you're not going to be here very long. And that's part of the challenge that God gives to you. He's going, I need I remind you that your stay is only temporary? You see, the challenge is how do we live here? Not allowing this world's character to become our character. To allow its corruption to become our corruption. To allow its contamination to become our contamination. And you experience it every once in a while, don't you? When you're watching TV or you're watching television or you're, or you're watching a movie or, or you're reading a book and you're, and you're looking out into this great big world and it's constantly inviting you into that contamination and into that corruption. The hearts of the patriarchs weren't going to allow the world's character to become their character. Because they're set on a pilgrimage and trusting God will 
turn even the most settled citizen into a pilgrim. The moment that you actually come to that place in your life where you go, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus is the Lord. Wait a minute. I don't belong here. Wait a minute. I'm going somewhere else. The new decisions are made. New priorities are embraced. So what is the answer to complaint? According to the writer of Hebrews, it's vision. You know, we sometimes use vision euphemistically. We see vision as, oh, how are we going to do whatever it is we need to accomplish? But when the Bible speaks of vision, it's talking about the ability to see God in whatever circumstance you find yourself in. In the book of Isaiah, there's this picture that Isaiah has. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Vision isn't just seeing the circumstances. It's looking and seeing God in the circumstance that you find yourself in. Thomas Carlyle famously said, He who has no vision of eternity has no hold on time. But if you have a vision of eternity... If you have a vision of eternity, just like Sam was talking about, the vision that the writer of Hebrews gives, he opens the veil and he invites the reader to see Jesus high and lifted up, seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly place. The Hebrew never occupied the whole land that was promised to them. The Old Testament saints didn't live to see the coming of the Messiah. Maybe John the Baptist is the exception to that. Vision that looks inward becomes duty. Vision that looks outward becomes aspiration. But vision that looks upward becomes faith. Do you understand what the writer of Hebrews is doing? He's inviting you to expand your understanding of faith. And so in verse 14, it says, for those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. What things? Those who say such things, the things that Abraham said, the things that Isaac said, the things that Jacob said, vision, they say certain things and then they seek certain things. Enduring faith sees and grows and has its sight set on home. It's a homeland. And I want you to think about that for just a moment. The Jews, when this letter was written, had a homeland. But within a few years, within a few years after this book was written, within a few years, the 10th and 12th legions of Rome are going to march into Jerusalem. They're going to destroy the city. They're going to burn it to the the ground. They're going to destroy, according to Josephus, some 6,000 villages in the Galilee and Judea. Over a million Jews are going to be killed. And they're going to be driven out of their homeland. And the diaspora would force Jews to live in Egypt and live in Babylon. For some, they went as far north as Russia and as far east as Germany. Others made their way to Italy. Some even made their way to Spain. 
they would later become homeless. Only temporary sojourners. One of the appealing things about Israel as a Jewish homeland is that it allows for a Jew to be a Jew. But what about the Christian? What about the Christian? What about you? Where do you really belong? Here? Somewhere else? In Central or South America or Europe or New Zealand or Australia or Africa? You see, the truth is, as a Christian, heaven is your home. And it's your future. Where can we call home? The writer of Hebrews suggests our faith will never be satisfied with anything here. We'll always yearn for a better land. What is the place that we're looking for? It's the place where Jesus is king. It's the place where Jesus is Lord. It's, where the, where, it's the place where Jesus' will is, is God's will. Remember we pray the prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a tiny little piece of heaven everywhere where Jesus is loved, admired, respected, obeyed. And that's why you can bring a little piece of heaven into your own heart Augustine wrote, do not seek to understand in order that you may believe, but believe so that you may understand, unquote. You see, the challenge becomes, well, I don't understand everything about everything. Hey, guess what? Neither do I. But the moment you believe that Jesus is the Lord, you begin to understand. Do you remember that moment? In your own life? Do you remember that moment where you strongly suspected that the Bible was true and that the story was true and that the death of Jesus really happened and that the reality of a risen Savior really happened? And you began to explore the possibility that if Jesus was alive, then your whole life could be different. And you believed. Joseph Fort Newton wrote, quote, Belief is a truth held in the mind. Faith is a fire in the heart, unquote. I love that. Belief is something that you believe with your mind, but faith is a fire in the heart. And so enduring faith leaves no room for compromise. Look at verse 15. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. Now, again, remember what you're reading and the context. The Hebrew Christians were in danger of going back to Judaism. So they're making an appeal. The writer is saying, where did Abraham come from? He left Ur of the Chaldees. But when Abraham left the land where his father was from to go to a new land, did he look back? Did he go back? Abraham had forsaken the land of his fathers, and more importantly, their idolatry. 
Each and every one of you, if you look back far enough into your past, you might find yourself somewhere in Africa. You might find yourself somewhere in Spain. You might, like me, find yourself somewhere on the island of Sicily, where my family was from, for a hundred generations. And your family left a particular place in a particular circumstance and a particular belief system. And the writer is basically saying, there's no going back. By the way, when Eleazar suggested to Abraham that Isaac be allowed to go back to the ancestral homeland to find a bride, Abraham made Eleazar swear an oath under no circumstance was Isaac to leave the land and go back to the place where his father Abraham was from. He made him put his hand, and I want, it's a family-friendly service, so I'm not going to tell you where he put his hand. But he made him swear. And it was the kind of oath that you don't break. For Abraham to go back would have meant apostasy. And the Christians who were tempted to go back faced the similar pressure to give in to compromise. And the writer of Hebrews invites them to consider themselves strangers away from home. Pilgrims on their way home. Abraham had no desire to go back. There was nothing there for him. And so that's the invitation to you. When you turn from sin and you turn to Jesus. And you're tempted to go back. You're tempted to go back to the life of rebellion and selfishness and disobedience. You're tempted to go back to the drugs and the alcohol. You're tempted to go back. You're tempted to hug that toilet seat and vomit into it. You're tempted to, to, to cry tears and, and experience distress. As the famous poet from the, the 70s who sang about a lost love, he said, for every time that we spent laughing, there were two times that I cried. And you might have laughed and loved and had some fun. But then you remember the darkness and the wickedness and the emptiness and the horror. And the writer of Hebrews says, why, why would you go back to that? There's nothing there for you. When Joshua reviewed the history of Israel in chapter 24 of Joshua, he said in verse 2 towards verse 3, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river. He's talking about the river Euphrates. In old times, he says, and they served other gods, unquote. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him throughout all the land of Canaan, multiplied his descendants, and gave him Isaac. Joshua reminds all of the Jewish people. Abraham was a person who had to make the choice to walk away from a life of idolatry and be the first person in his family to walk with God in faith. You know, you may have grown up in a household of faith. Your mom and your dad were Christians. But maybe they weren't. Maybe you grew up in a home like I did, where the people didn't really know God, love God, or read the Bible, or at least believe it. 
And you had to be the first person to say, I'm going to walk away from that kind of a life. I want to have a different life. Drake Raft writes, quote, Compromise is always wrong when it means sacrificing principle, unquote. You know, compromise is often the first step towards disobedience. In the Bible, we see Pilate wanting to satisfy the crowd, and in so doing, he does Jesus a grave injustice. Pilate, in order to make the crowds happy, is willing to convict an innocent man. He doesn't really care about justice. He doesn't really care about truth. Jesus was innocent. Compromise can weaken and destroy faith. Paul wrote to the Galatians in chapter 2, verse 14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, in front of everyone, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs, unquote? Paul knew that compromise was going to lead to a disaster. Compromise can weaken our respect for the truth. The Judaizers accused Paul of watering down the gospel to make it easier for the Gentiles to accept the gospel, while Paul accused the Judaizers of nullifying the truth of the gospel by adding conditions to salvation that were never intended to be there. The big controversy in the early church was, does a Gentile have to become a Jew in order to be a Christian? Paul said, no. What do you have to do to be a Christian? You have to really believe in Jesus and love him. Believe that he loves you and that he died for you and, and that he rose from the dead. And that by his Holy Spirit, he has the ability to change you. On what basis are we saved? That's what was at issue. Is salvation through grace alone and Christ alone? Or is it by keeping the law? So what is the answer to those who are tempted to compromise and return to the old life? Their vision becomes cloudy. It becomes blurred. They no longer hear the promises, and see the promises. What is the answer to those who are tempted to compromise and return to the old life? It's to retain the vision. It's to hear the promises of God over and over and over again. And for some of you, you might be sick of me saying it. You hear me say it repeatedly. Oh, God loves you. Jesus loves you. He promises to forgive you. He promises to be reconciled to you. He promises to strengthen you in your walk in the here and now. And then he promises to be with you. He promises to follow you into the future so that no matter where the future finds you, he's going to bring you back to life. And you're going to be with him forever. And so... It's a growing faith, a working faith, an enduring faith. We refuse to go back. In Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, We know that suffering is a source of endurance. 
an endurance of approval and approval hope. In other words, there's a relationship between suffering and endurance and approval and hope. Someone once said, what we obtain too easy, we value too lightly. It is the cost that gives value, unquote. What does following Christ cost you? Criticism? Suspicion? Aggravation? Maybe even persecution? The Bible invites us to forsake compromise and embrace the hard thing. Not simply as something hard, but something that will make us different and cause us to endure. You know, last night I saw the movie Unbroken by Louis Zamperini. It's the story of his life. Maybe some of you are familiar with the movie. I had a son, Luke Zamperini, on my radio program. And the story was compelling on so many different levels. He, in 1936, was an Olympic athlete. In 1940, he went off to World War II. His, his plane was shot down and he survived on a raft with two other men for some 45 days. And one day became three days, which became five days and 20 days. And you go on this journey with him and you watch him as he, as a seagull lands on the raft and he captures it and he hasn't eaten. And so he decides he's going to eat this seagull. He goes, I have to try. And then the movie shows him throwing up all over himself and, and the raft and, and into the water. When they are eventually rescued, it's by the Japanese army and he's taken to a prison camp and he experiences unspeakable abuse. And there's a point in the movie where he is so angry and he is so bitter and he is so filled with rage that he wants to kill his captor. He begins to plot in his own mind how he can kill the person who is the source of this unspeakable agony. And a wise officer says to him something compelling. He says, the best way to answer the cruelty and the wickedness of the Japanese is survive. Survive. Endure. Survive this. Be alive when the smoke clears and the dust settles. And for the Christian, the smoke will clear and the dust will settle. And all of the wickedness and all of the wrong and all of the harm and all of the suffering and all of the persecution is going to go away. And Jesus is going to be king. And Jesus is going to be Lord. And you're going to survive into the future. 
Because enduring faith leaves no room for comparison. Look what he says in verse 16. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Think about what you're reading. The Jew is powerfully drawn to the land. Israel is a special place. But the writer of Hebrews is basically saying... Jerusalem is a wonderful place and it's a special place. Israel is a wonderful place and it's a special place. But there's a better place. There's a better place. There's a heaven. And in the end, there's no comparison to the land here and the land there. Once a person has a clear vision of heaven, once you see the most beautiful places on the planet earth, and by the way, I live and you live in one of the most beautiful places in the whole planet. All you have to do is just go into those mountains a few short miles and there is stunning and captivating beauty. But as beautiful as it is, it's nothing compared to heaven. Once a person has a clear vision of heaven, Just like the song says, the things of this earth grows strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Costa Rica, beautiful. Amazon Basin, beautiful. Victoria Falls, breathtaking and stunning. Alaska, amazing. Heaven, when you see heaven, when you really see heaven, then everything will begin to disappear. You know, it's interesting to me. Look at that word just once again in verse 16. But now they desire. A better, that is a heavenly country. That word desire is very interesting in the original language. In the Greek language, it means to stretch out the hand. Or to stretch out a hand. Or to reach further. The picture is a picture of a man stretching out his hand as far as he can possibly stretch. It, 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 it seems to indicate that you are exercising every single ounce of your ability to stretch yourself as far as you can go. It also means to stretch the fingers or to touch or to grasp. And so the writer of Hebrews is inviting the reader to see, to stretch what they apparently had failed to see, what they had failed to grasp, what they had failed to get a vision of, to stretch themselves so that they could see what they hadn't seen before. Heaven. Now remember, the Jew reading this passage might, take, might pause and go, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why then are most of the promises, the promises in the Old Testament related to the land? What about the promises that related to the physical and the material prosperity in the land? What about the men and women of faith, persuaded, confident, trusting? The Lord God described himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. 
Even Jesus refers to God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Matthew 22, 32. So what is he talking about? He's basically saying that all of the promises of the physical and the material blessings that were promised were only a type and a shadow and a picture of something far more wonderful. And that's why he says in verse 16, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. In other words, God was happy to be recognized as which, which God are you talking about? The God of Abraham, the, the God of Isaac, the, the God of Jacob. Wouldn't it be wonderful if God decided to identify himself with your name? I'm the God of Scott. I'm the God of Belinda. I'm the, the God of Sarah. I'm the God of Jeremy. I'm the God of Gino. I'm that God. I am that God. I'm the God of that person who loves me and believes in me, who believes the promise and sees the promise and embraces the promise. God's not ashamed to be called their God. God has not only recognized these men, John Philip says, but he's also going to reward them. And so that's what the writer of Hebrews says. The writer of Hebrews says, these men and women of faith, God not only identifies with them, but he invites everyone to identify with their faith. And that's why Abraham is called the father of faith. And what is God's reward? What is his reward? Therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared a city for them. Think about what you're reading. God not only recognizes them, God rewards them. And what is his reward? You might be thinking, well, it's heaven. And certainly it's that, but it's way more than that. It's eventually going to be heaven, but it begins with approval. God approves of you. In what sense? In what sense? He approves of you because you said, wait a minute, I believe that the Bible is true. Wait a minute, I believe that Jesus is the Lord. Wait a minute, I believe that the promises in the Bible are for me. Wait a minute, I, I'm, I'm beginning to believe and understand that Jesus is alive and he can come into my heart and if I will just simply trust him by faith, Faith that my life can be totally different. And God goes, <laughs> finally. That's what he approves of. You have God's approval. The Lord's not ashamed to be called their God. Why is he not ashamed? Because they believed him. I want you to think about that. Why isn't God ashamed? Because they heard the promise and they believed the promise and they obeyed the promise. Have you ever wondered if God was ashamed of you? You might be thinking, I've done some pretty shameful things. I've done some wicked things. I've done some horrible things. I've done things that I wish to God I hadn't done. 
But the moment that you do the one thing that God approves of, hears what he has to say, believes what he has to say, and obeys what he has to say, God says, I'm not ashamed of you. Isn't that amazing? And guess what? God is not ashamed of a people who are willing to call him their portion and heaven their home. So the moment that you begin to identify with Jesus and with the God of the Bible, and you say, you know what, all of this other stuff, that isn't who I am and that's not what I'm going to be about. I'm going to identify with Jesus. I'm going to identify with his promises. I'm going to identify with his love. Well, guess what? The moment you do that, you also identify with his future. That's what it means to be where he's going to be. But what about the person? What about the person whose faith isn't real? What about the person who doubts the promise or denies the truth or fails to see that the Bible is true and they refuse the vision and they refuse the growth and they refuse the journey? What happens to them? Remember, these aren't men and women of faith. Because remember, faith is more than just simply believing the promise with your mind. It's receiving the promise with your heart. And it's obeying the promise with your will. And when I'm talking about the promise, I'm talking about the promise of salvation in Christ. And look carefully at that expression. He's prepared a city for them. You know, it's again interesting about this in the original language. The verb in the Greek tense is called the aorist tense. It means that it's already been done. The idea is that God has prepared a place for them and it's already done. So instead of thinking about God is in the process of preparing a place, that's not exactly right. Jesus himself said, I'm going to prepare a place for you to receive you to myself. The place has been prepared, and that word prepared is such an impressive word because it speaks to a diligent commitment to make an accommodation with you in mind. I have two children. I have three children, but two of them, their wives are pregnant, and they're going to have babies. Well, no, one of them now. One just had a baby. One has another baby coming along. But when you're pregnant and you're having a baby, do you, have you ever met somebody who goes, hey, we've got to prepare the room. We've got to prepare the room for the baby. And you begin to outfit this room with the understanding of who the new little arrival is going to be. That's the kind of place that the Lord has prepared for you. Lewis Sperry Chafer said, heaven is a prepared place. For a prepared people. Jesus has prepared a place for you. And it's my job to prepare you to be there. So that you don't seem like a total tourist. 
And you go, oh, yeah, Gino talked about this. He said that heaven was a real place and that there was going to be a place for me. The Lord prepared a city and then he delivered a city. But it's not an ordinary city. It's the heavenly city. Now think about what the writer is saying. God has prepared you not a temporary place, but a permanent place. The city is described in verse 10. And then it's repeated again in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. And do you ever wonder what you're going to do there? You're going to sing there. And you're going to serve there. And you're going to learn there. Here's what I guarantee you. You won't be bored. And if you are, come and see me. I'll give you your money back. (laughs) David Brainerd was a missionary to the Native Americans just prior to what some historians call the First Great Awakening. And David died when he was about 29 years old. And he wrote in his journal, My heaven is to please God. And to glorify him. And to give all to him. And to be wholly devoted to his glory. That's the heaven that I long for. And you know what? Our longing for heaven isn't simply a refuge. So that we can escape the pains of this world. It's a permanent place of joy. Peace. And safety. That's why we long for Jesus. By the way, what happens when you catch a glimpse of heaven? I have a lengthy quote, but I'm going to read it all because it's that important. John Bunyan wrote, They who will have heaven must run for it, because the devil, the law, sin, death, and hell are following them. There's never a poor soul that goes to heaven where the devil, the law, sin, death, and hell do not chase after it. Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5.8. And I assure you, the devil is nimble. He can run very quickly. He's light on his feet, and he has overtaken many. He has knocked them down and given them an everlasting fall. Also, there is the law, which can shoot a great distance. Be careful to stay out of the reach of the law's great guns, the Ten Commandments. Hell is also a wide mouth. It can stretch itself Further and further, further than you're aware of, as the angel said to Lot. Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed, Genesis 19:17. And then John Bunyan writes: So I say to you, take heed. Do not delay any longer, lest the devil, hell, death, or the fearful curses of the law overtake you and throw you in the midst of your sins so that you never rise and recover again. If this were well considered, then you as well as I would say they would have heaven. They who would have heaven must run for it, unquote. He's exactly right. Do you want to go to heaven? Then you're going to have to open up your 
mind and believe the truth of the gospel. You're going to have to open up your heart and believe it. And then you're going to have to have your mind and your heart inform your will to walk away from hell and then to walk straight into the arms of Jesus. We walk by faith. Absent complaint, comparison or, or, or compromise. We walk by faith. Our vision helping us see the promise of God. We walk by faith and we experience growth. We walk by faith and we walk away from sin and we walk towards Jesus and we persevere. And then one day, just like the song says, your heart grows old and your faith is committed and seasoned. And your heart stops beating and your eyes close. And then your eyes open. And you see the face of Jesus. And every single question gets answered. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord. Lord, as we look at this faith chapter and these men and women of faith, Lord, we pray that you would continue to grow us up. Lord, we pray that you would continue to open up our eyes so that we could see the invisible and where the things of earth begin to grow strangely dim. And we see clearer than we've ever seen before the truth about our future, that we belong with Jesus. It's where we've always belonged. In Jesus' name. And all the saints said, Amen. Let's stand.